this is where practice actually completely aligns with theory is that you should be trying a lot of different things because one you're not sure what's going to necessarily be singing to you speaking to you two it's impossible to predict which one of these things are actually going to take off which where's the wind of opportunity going to sit and when you can match up your interest with the wind of opportunity that as an entrepreneur is gold welcome to the in factor conversations about how great entrepreneurs started stumbled and succeeded i'm rebecca white and today's episode features best-selling author entrepreneur and speaker franz johansson Today, Franz delves into the motivation and insights behind his groundbreaking book, The Medici Effect, and provides some solid advice to aspiring entrepreneurs on identifying opportunities, dealing with failure, and breaking free of limiting mental associations. I'm confident you will enjoy this conversation. I am so excited to be able to sit down and talk to you today. Your book really was life-changing for me in terms of my thinking, but also it was a tremendous opportunity. I've been an educator for a number of years, and it allowed me to share a message with students that I thought was really transformative and important. So first of all, thank you for your work. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. I I really appreciate it. (laughs) So this is a podcast for entrepreneurs who are... To either nascent entrepreneurs or those that are already out there practicing and they want to expand their, their opportunities. And, and so I wanted to start by talking about you as an entrepreneur. I understand that, that at least back in college, you started your own journal and you may have done things before that that I don't know about, but could you start by telling us a little about your own journey as an entrepreneur? Sure, absolutely. So yes, you're you're correct. I started a so when I went to college, basically I thought I was gonna focus on one of two things. It was either I was gonna either major in physics or in English. And the reason I said English was because in high school I actually wrote my first book, it was a fiction book, like sort of like a Dungeons and Dragons type of adventure. Uh-huh. And I managed to sell it. And so it ultimately never got published. The publisher went bankrupt before it could happen. But it taught me something about the act of creation, if you will. So then I I went to college and I was convinced, I was sure that I was going to start, after college, I was going to do my PhD in marine biology. Now, my senior year though, there was this idea that I've been kicking around for a couple of years at Brown, at Brown University, which was, I wanted to pull together the various sciences and the various departments that existed on campus. And, I, and in fact, I wanted to do so while also pulling in the writing element. I felt it was very important for scientists to be able to express their research, their insights, but in a way that was sort of accessible to others. There was an idea that I had back then. And my senior year, I finally said, look, I, I got to do something about it because it's either going to happen now or, or never. And so I started The Catalyst. It was a, a magazine, an interdisciplinary science magazine that, that pulled together sciences, but also pulled in, you know, writing, art, and so on, to sort of create this more holistic sort of approach to bridge the gap, if you will, between the sciences and the humanities. And it was an incredible experience. In fact, that was the one thing that made me realize that maybe, just maybe, this PhD in marine biology, maybe there's something else that could sort of compete for its attention for me. I, 
I clearly got what people commonly refer to as the entrepreneurial bug. It was just an amazing, amazing experience to start this magazine, uh, bring it to fruition, get the funding for it, and then see the impact it had. And, and it had a huge impact, actually, still around That's all great. these years later. Yeah. You know, 24 years later, it's, it's still doing its thing on campus. And so that was when I started rethinking what my path was after college. And I will say at that point, I realized a couple of things. One was, if I took my GREs at that point and applied to a PhD program and, I, and then got accepted to the one I wanted to go to, I would go. Like, that's just, so I said, you know what? I'm not going to do that. And people told me, well, maybe you should do this as a backup. I was like, well, I need to do something <laughs> else. But yeah, but it's a backup. It's, it's never bad to have a backup. And I said, well, if I have it as a backup and I can't find this other thing, then I'm just going to fall back on my backup. That's the definition of a backup. And so I just decided not to apply to any C programs at that time and eventually started that experience with the magazine was what gave me the, the inspiration and the encouragement, I should say, to start a company right out of undergrad. And this was back in 95. I mean, today it's much more common. Right. But back in 95, I literally know, knew of no one else in that entire class to start a company after graduation, except for my cousin I started together with. So the two of us started together, yeah. moved to Baltimore and got it going. So that was the journey back in, back in those days. That's very cool. You know, I was, it's interesting because I was kind of having my own epiphanies about that time, moving from my PhDs in strategy, but I had a mom who was an entrepreneur. She was a creative actually. And I was always more analytical, but I had this creative bent. So I was kind of like you. When I went to college, I was going to be an interior designer, and then I was going to be a math major. And, you know, so it was like (laughs) this world for me, kind of like you. I had all these different interests, and it was hard, hard to figure it out. But in the 90s was about the time that I transitioned into teaching entrepreneurship, late 90s. And it was, you know, it was kind of a heady time. We were starting, you know, we, we were having the dot-com era. Yeah. And so it was a pretty exciting time to move into the world of academics. But just, you know, relating to that, my, fa- my passion has always been about bringing entrepreneurship to students who are not necessarily business, right? leading down a business path, that's, you know. and That was me. Yeah. And that, so that's, it's exciting to hear your story. Now, the, the Medici Effect, which is the book that I've used for a number of years in my class, is just an incredible book. It's been translated into 21 different languages. It's used not only by classrooms, but corporations. In many, in many ways, the insights and observations in this book have really changed, I think, the way we do business and the way we think about innovation. I also love the analogy of the Renaissance. That really resonated with me as somebody who looks at <laughs> ecosystems, you know, and how to develop those. So tell me where that those groundbreaking ideas came from. It's such an elegant theory. I love it. And, you know, it's so simple, but the best theories are. Yes. Wow. So in many ways, you know, my whole life had sort of pointed me towards this. I grew up in Sweden, and but I grew up differently in Sweden. My, my mother is Black. She's African-American and Cherokee. And my dad is Swedish. So growing up that way in Sweden made me appreciate what it meant to have a different perspective based off of cultural and country backgrounds. And then when I went to college, just as I said, with the experience of Catalyst, I saw the same sort of principles play out, but this time across disciplines, across functions. 
I'm like, whoa, these are similar notions that I could see, whether it's bringing ideas from geology into economics, or whether it's bringing ideas from Sweden to the States. Like, there's an underlying truth there. And after I started the, my company out of undergrad, I then went to business school at Harvard. I started another company out of that during the whole dot-com sort of era. And that one didn't do as well. And as I was sort of winding that down, this idea struck me. I realized that these experiences that I'd had through my life pointed towards some more universal truth around innovation, around creativity, around entrepreneurship, around the act of creation, which was that these intersections of different industries and fields and cultures, they are incredibly powerful in driving new ideas, breakthrough ideas. They create entirely new fields. And it was a notion, it was, a, it was, an, it was an intuition that I had at that time. But I got so wrapped up in it that I, that I felt I, I really needed to go much deeper mm-hmm. to explore it. And, and as it happened, I'd, I got an opportunity to do so. I actually had started the software company before I'd finished my degree at HBS. So now I, I circled back for the last semester and I talked to a professor there and I said, look, can we create an independent study where the purpose of it is for me to do research for this book concept? And she said, this, this sounds great. And that's, that's exactly what happened. I was now starting to get real research meet on, the, on sort of this intuition that I had. I interviewed hundreds of people around the world. I don't know how many papers I read on the topic of innovation, creativity, entrepreneurship, but it was a ton. And through all of that, this simpler idea, as you said, it's a simpler, it is a simple idea, but man, the amount of iterations that I had to go through to get there, sure. to get to something that was easy to hold on to, easy to, to grasp, but that was, I think of it as fractal. It should work whether you are a CEO or whether you are somebody that is thinking about how to create a new art piece, whether you're a scientist, these principles are universal, so it should work independently, irrespectively of where you sit in this sort of geography of the innovation. Oh, see, as a social scientist, there's nothing that gets me more excited than an ele- elegant theory. And that's really what we're talking about here. You know, to be able to get something to its simplest form is incredibly complex and challenging. So it I was, love it. I love yes. it. Yes. No, it was, you know, for those that are listening to this, a share a little anecdote on this. You know, it is hard to know sometimes when you're in a creative work, an entrepreneurial endeavor, like when are you, when are you done with something? Because you can always add, you can always tweak, you can always, right. you can always do stuff before you sort of put it out there. And there were, and there were the two things that, two observations that I had around this. My dad, who was a writer, he started a sports fishing magazine. He asked me, are you throwing up yet? <laughs> in terms of editing this book. And I said, no, I'm not. Well, then you're not done. Because you, you, know, you know when you're done, when, you, when you're just sick and tired of it. I was like, okay, that's an, interesting, that's an interesting guide. And in practical terms, that meant that my very first draft of Medici Effect was about 100,000 words. The one that you read had about 63,000 words in it. Right. So this process of simplifying, reducing, yes. removing yes. all the extraneous stuff that was what was really going on during that time. That's powerful. I love it. As a daughter of an artist, I saw that a lot as well. When do you <laughs> let it go? And I face that as well. So one of the things that really interests me about this, when I work with young college age yep. students, they're really interested. Many of them know or believe they want to be an entrepreneur, but they don't always know what 
where the opportunity is and they don't know how to find one. So what advice would you give them about recognizing opportunities? It's a, it's a fascinating field and it's kind of hard to pin down how that happens. It's such a great question. It is such a great question. And there are many things about how education works, which is completely misaligned with how this process that you're describing works, like Mm -hmm. the real world works. And what Uh I mean by that is in education, there's so many pointers, right? What are you specializing in? And by the way, I mean the whole world of education. So for instance, what sport is it that you should be focusing on? Is it about science? Is it about writing? You're, you're trying to, people, you're trying to slot people in pretty quickly. And then you get to college, you need to figure out what your major is. So these are all sort of decisions about who we are, what we like, what we want to do, that we get trained so that now when we're thinking about, well, what I want to do is I want to do entrepreneurship, we say, I just need to figure out in what. It's a little bit of a problematic approach, I I believe, Uh because the ideal way to do it, and and this is where practice actually completely aligns with theory, is that you should be trying a lot of different things because there are, because one, you're not sure what's going to necessarily be singing to you, speaking to you. Mm -hmm. And two, it's impossible to predict which one of these things are actually going to take off. Which, where's the wind of opportunity going to sit? And when you can match up your interest with the wind of opportunity, that as an entrepreneur is gold. Like you, if you have one, but not the other, you're going to have a problem. It's a wind of opportunity, but you don't like what you're doing. You're probably not going to make it. You like what you're doing, but there's, there's no wind of opportunity. Same thing there. I mean, you might be spinning your wheels on something that you really enjoy, but you're, you don't really have the ability to move forward. And so you need these two things to match up. And for that, you need to try and experiment. So the advice I have is to put yourself out there. Don't overthink an idea. If you're getting something, you think it holds some power to you. Don't overthink it. Get started. That act of getting started is going to give you another set of ideas. It's going to put you in front of other people. And maybe you were right the first time. Well, great. But if you weren't, you're now about to step on another path. And so this gives me to my second piece around this, which is allow yourself to be surprised. Allow yourself to change course based off of this set of what is your winning opportunity and what is that you like. Really at this age, I think that's the best piece of advice I could give. I love it. I love it. You know, I had a student from Haiti a few years back. This was actually 2009, 2010. And he was going to start a t-shirt factory. And then he was going to, or t-shirt imprinting company. And then he was going to sell roses. Then he was going to do this, that. He had all these different ideas. And he went home to Haiti. And they had that horrible earthquake. And he was, it was devastating. And what he saw there made him identify with an opportunity. And he came back to school and got some, wrote a business plan to start a recycling company there in Haiti. And I went back and actually there's more to the story, but the bottom line is he was able to create an amazing business there that, that fed 6,000 Haitians because wow. they were able to bring in trash, which he then recycled. And he put about 75 other Haitians to work in his business. And it was just an amazing social enterprise that he never would have dreamed up in the classroom. He had to experience life. He had to experience life. And I say to people anywhere, CEOs, entrepreneurs, surprise is is a leading indicator of innovation, right? And here's what to remember. The people that founded YouTube 
when they started it, YouTube was a dating site. Now, so of course it ended up being something else, but if you're looking to create the next YouTube, are you willing to start with the next dating site? I mean, this is what, this is what it comes down to. You're not sure. Google, the founders of Google, nine months after they had started Google, they realized that they had to make a choice. They could either pursue the PhD studies at Stanford or they could go with Google. And they made that choice. They said, we're going to go for PhD studies at Stanford. And so they tried to sell Google for a million dollars to Yahoo at the time. And Yahoo said, we're not interested. So obviously they missed out. But obviously, the founders of Google didn't even understand what they had. I mean, they were, they were more interested in going back to the PhD studies. They weren't able to sell it. And then just a couple of months later, you know, the, the opportunity had changed. It is impossible to have a good sense of where your next opportunity is going to come from. So overthinking it, overanalyzing it cannot be the pathway for that reason. There's other things, much more interesting things that are going to guide you. And ultimately, it is the act of creation that guides you. It's right. the act of entrepreneurship that guides you. Right. So developing that entrepreneurial mindset and then opening it up and paying attention to what's going on around you, I think. That's right. It's a That's part right. of what you're talking about. And, and pay attention to when you are surprised, because that usually connotes a win of opportunity. That suggests that's very you cool. on something that is not obvious. And that's what you really want. Right. Right. That's very cool. So... You know, that leads me, it's great to lead into kind of my next question. A few years ago, Klaus Schwab, founder and executive chairman of the World Economic Forum, described the fourth industrial revolution and the tremendous possibilities and risks of, you know, artificial intelligence, the Internet of Things, the cyber physical systems. We got a lot of things going on here. Is there a blueprint for success for business today? And if so, what do you think it is? You're an entrepreneur, a a classically trained business, Harvard Business School, plus creator. What do you think? So I'll answer it this way. Ten years ago, what CEOs would tell me, the question CEOs would ask would be, what's my next killer product? And then maybe five years ago, it would be, what's my next killer business model? But today, the question I hear most CEOs asking is the following. Is the world outside of my company changing faster than inside of it? Which is a completely different question. Now what they're concerned about isn't just the next product or business model. They're concerned about whether or not the enterprise that they're leading is even capable of adapting fast enough. And usually the answer is no, they don't feel it's not. So what do they need to do to change? In fact, the Medici Group, which is the company that I've created based off of the Medici Effect, our entire mission is to help corporations transform this way, specifically through diversity and inclusion. And so to your question, what is really happening is that there is, no, there is no blueprint except for enabling yourself to change faster and adapt faster. I mean, those things are going to be, not only are they, going to, are they necessary today, they're going to be increasingly necessary as we move forward. The rate of change is only increasing. So amassing a mindset and a skill set of, and a tool set of what does it mean to what does it mean to start in this direction and explore something and then switch over to another? What does it mean to adopt new technologies? And the thing is, no one person can do all of this. And so that suggests that we need to actually build networks, diverse networks, mm-hmm. of people that can, that can tap into different technologies, different industries, different cultures, different countries. That's, in my mind, that is not just a successful recipe for a corporation. It is also a successful recipe for a person. It's not about knowing exactly what to do. It's about setting up the conditions 
so you can figure out that whatever that is, the next thing you're able to do it. Right, right. You know, I've always been fascinated by the research around the power of heterogeneous networks. And oh, yes. Uh, Absolutely. And, you know, you approach, you bring up diversity as a big part of what your the Medici group does. And I, I love your perspective because I would label it somewhat pragmatic. Can you talk a little bit more about your perspective on diversity and the role that it plays and, and how companies maybe who, are, who would like to have that kind of approach might be thinking about diversity? Yes, absolutely. And you're right. I mean, look, there are all kinds of reasons why I believe based on my own personal experience, people around me, why, why I think diversity and inclusion and belonging and equity matters that has to do with equity in society and so on. That's not really, though, what the Medici effect was about. What the Medici effect was about was that diversity drives innovation, which is another extremely powerful argument for diversity. What's happened is that the way we help companies transform is that we say, look, what you need is you need to enhance your diversity. And that diversity is meaningless unless you have the inclusion. You can have people from lots of different backgrounds, et cetera, but if they're not actually able to connect and recombine their ideas and perspectives, well, then, then it doesn't matter that you have all this diversity. Right, right. So you need the diversity and you need the inclusion in order to drive innovation. And we actually have a kind of like a five-point scale that we sort of look, we, we peg leaders or organizations against. The first one is that diversity doesn't even matter to them at all. And they haven't either thought about it or they're actively avoiding it. The second one is that they think about it, they think about it from a, a legal or compliance reason. You know, the, the law says we can't discriminate, so this is where diversity fits in. The third level, which is where most people are, is sort of it's the right thing to do, it's the just thing to do, so we all have to step up here. But talking about diversity that way means that it's on a, always on a parallel track to the business. So we got the business imperative, then we have the diversity imperative, and, mm-hmm. and so we're trying to sort of, we need to focus on both. The fourth level really says that the world itself is becoming more diverse. So if we want to be more successful, we have to be able to cater to that world. This is sort of the story that came out, an example of this, uh, a couple of, was it two months ago, where Beyonce, I think was of... I believe it was with Reebok. She went to a meeting with Reebok and basically said, look, not a single person in this room represents me or, or many of my fans. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. sayonara. I'm sure that Reebok is going to rethink how they are, how right. they're approaching this right. uh, in the future because of that. And the fifth level though is different. The fifth level says that no matter what it is that you're looking at, whether it is the market, whether it is innovation, supply chain, whether these are ideas that are computational, whether it's ideas that are retail, whatever, you're better off having a diverse and inclusive team and perspective. No matter what, it's a strategic advantage. And the more you're able to unleash it, the better off you are. If you're an entrepreneur and you're looking to start a, and you're looking to recruit a team, sometimes it makes sense to start with your best friend, okay? Because that's, you've been talking about this for years. But if you have a choice and if you have the ability to, try to get as much diversity into that team as possible. You're going to pay dividends for years because of your ability to explore new and different pathways, new and different ideas. Yeah, I'm such a believer in that. I love that philosophy as educator. I'm really lucky because the university where I teach is very diverse. We have 148 countries represented here at our little 10,000 student school. So that is an incredible incredible experience. Yeah, walking into our graduate class with, uh, you know, 20 students and 12 different countries represented is is pretty cool. 
So I love that perspective. I want to switch a little bit and talk a little bit about failure because it's a topic that we talk about a lot and we have different, you know, our students have a different, lots of discussions about it. And it seems, and what my experience has been and what I've seen in others, that failure and adversity is often a part, if not always a part of the process. Did failure play a role in your own success at any point? And and was there a time you felt like giving up? And how do you define failure? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, another great, great topic. And I, again, I think that the way education works, it, it really, it doesn't really prepare us for the truth about success in today's world where failure is inevitable. You know, in, in education, failure is lower grade. I mean, it's very few parts of education, particularly from K to 12, but even going into university, it's about failing. <laughs> it's like, right. that's not, that's not right. part of it. But, and yet we see it through research. We see it empirically. This is how we make, enable large corporations to change. Now, where does that, where, where did that insight come from for me personally? And I've seen it over and over and over again. I mean, it's gotten to the point that I, I don't know if I today would really ever describe anything that I'm doing as a failure, unless it was a failure of even enabling failure. Like basically, here's where it showed up. Let me try to clarify that. I'll give you an example. So back in high school, I, I wrote this book and I managed to sell it, which, you know, all huge success all around. I was extremely happy about that. But then it was never published, which really was a big setback for me. And it made me think about how do I even, how do I even process this? And I came out of that experience understanding that even though it didn't get published, it was more about the process that I had, everything I'd gained from committing myself to writing a book and then pitching it, selling it. Like that whole thing had given me so much that whatever I was about to do next, which ended up being the catalyst, basically, the magazine, I, had, I was in, in a so much better place. Right. So it wasn't really a failure. Now, then my second company was a enterprise software company. I started that during the whole dot-com era. And I mean, it, it, that did not go well. Again, I would say that I actually had a conversation yesterday where I pulled lessons from that experience. Mm-hmm. And today, I mean, in the Medici group, we have lots of employees and they are actively encouraged to create new projects or concepts, but they also know that they're rewarded if they shut those down, if they don't work. Mm-hmm. But they have to actually come to recognize failure. It's tricky because sometimes we want somebody else to tell us that this doesn't work. But to say that this ourselves, I had a person on, uh, on my team, she'd been working on a particular project for many months. And she came to me after like three and said, and this is her charge. You know what? I think we should shelve this. This is not really going the way we want it to go. Extremely powerful. Because what did it allow her to do? start something else, which is taking off like a rocket. It's called the Medici Effect Community. All kinds of entities around the world, organizations, institutions, like Nona, which is around the corner of in Orlando. For you guys down in Tampa is uh-huh. a member of this community and it's exploded. We have chapters now in countries. I mean, and it would have been impossible for her to switch and try that idea unless she'd actually acknowledged that this, this didn't work, but I have tons of learnings from it. And I'm going to parlay those learnings into my next my next, my next right. venture. So it's, it's related to the whole idea of pivoting and learning and continuing to keep moving. Yes. Path. And the fact that we can't, no matter how much we analyze, no matter how much we think about it, we can't 
predict success if we could we'd all be trillionaires and that's just <laughs> right. not how the, that's not how the world works we have to explore our way to towards success and by implication we have to fail we have to try we have to experiment and that's all part of the actually the fun of the process is that's right <laughs> it, i mean it is you have to you have when to, you let go and yes, accept you have that to think about it that way when you accept it then it becomes a very different thing Right, right. Let's talk just a few minutes about term that you use in the in the Medici effect called associative barriers. Yes. And and could you talk about how we might might think about that and how we might work with those that we might already have? Yes. So associative barriers refers to this idea that if we spend time within a field or within a culture or within an industry we start building sort of a shorthand for what certain concepts or ideas mean. And so, for instance, if I'm a, if I'm, I love to go fishing. Okay, so I go down to Florida frequently to go fishing. Right, great place thing. to fish. Yeah, great place to fish. And so, if I see a fish, if I see a, a picture of a fish, if I if I read it, I will be instantly going to the world of fishing. This is where I'm sort of driven towards, right? Because this is how I'm constructed the, the framework around it. Now, if you're a chef, you may have very different association around that fish. You will be thinking about maybe a meal, but can you cook with it? Can you come up with a new dish? Can you do whatever it is? And breaking down associative barriers means that you have fluidity in this, that you're able to say, I'm seeing this fish, but I'm able to go to different contexts with this. I'm able to think about it as an object from a museum, as a documentary, as the scales of a fish, could that be applied to a new fashion pattern? Or maybe the scales could be applied to a new way of creating protective gear for soldiers in the field. Or maybe I'm thinking about the fish from the perspective of health and wellness. I mean, the more fluidity you have around this, the more ideas one given concept is going to give you. And having low associative barriers means that you have this fluidity. You're able to associate far more broadly with any given concept. And the Medici effect is really about being able to do that. You're able to, to step into this intersection because all of a sudden you see far more possibilities. Somebody gives you an idea, a concept, you're going to be likely to start try to slot it into, let me rephrase this by saying, let's say you started a business and the business in a particular area, maybe it's about it's a yoga business of some sort. You're doing an app for yoga. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden, people start giving you, you start reading, you start seeing things, and it all gets slotted into this yoga concept. The more fluid you have, the lower associated barriers you have, the more things you can start connecting with your yoga business. Not just things that are traditionally within that industry or traditionally within that field. All of a sudden, you start seeing something like, how does climate change, how does that fit into the yoga business? And you might get ideas out of that. Uh -huh. How does what I just saw in my last trip to Poland, I saw something there, how does that fit into my yoga? This lower associative barriers means that you're making those connections more frequently. And it's super exciting. That is very cool. So if I want to take on that more of that kind of mindset. Are there, are there ways to do that? Can you help me there? Yes, there are, there are long-term and short-term ways. I mean, the short-term ways and the most useful for those that are listening to this, let's say that you're trying to come up with some ideas around a concept. 
look for the non-obvious places. Okay. So, you know, if, if you're, and so what that means is, let's say that we're, one of our clients is a food company. And so when we think about ideas, you can imagine going and looking at food magazines or blogs or, or looking at what other food companies are doing. All right. That's obvious though. I mean, they're already doing that. So what happens if you start looking into, well, okay, what does Formula One car race have to do with this food company? Well, nothing is the initial assumption, but you can train yourself. So when you want to lower your social barriers, you can train yourself in a short-term way to make these connections. And I would encourage anybody who's here to do so. A great way of doing it, go to Google Images, type in a random word, cat or a plant or whatever, and you're going to get some images. Look at that image and see if you can draw some associations from that to what the problem opportunity that you're working on. And you start, you won't start seeing other things. The fern has a fractal pattern. Hmm. Maybe this repeated pattern is something I can apply to my business. It's, it's an abstraction of your challenges, of your opportunities. The long-term way is something that we should be working on all the time. Don't get trapped into bubbles within your social sphere. Try to introduce diversity into it. Mm-hmm. Try, to, try to broaden what it is that you read, what it is that you've been inspired by. Don't just read one particular type of book. One of the books that have helped me the most over the past couple of years to gain new ideas was The Count of Monte Cristo. And I would, could never have predicted that, not because of the revenge theme, which is mm-hmm. one theme that is prevalent throughout it, because many of the other pieces of writing that showed up in that book, and there's a new translation out, I read it and I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm thinking differently about this part of the business, about that opportunity, and it gives me an edge. It uh-huh. allows me to see things that are not obvious to others. So in the short term, the things you can do right after this podcast, in the long term, the things that you should be doing every day, every week, every month, every year to broaden your experiences broaden your perspectives. Thank you. That's that's amazing. So as we wrap up here, you wrote The Click Moment, a Seizing Opportunity in an, an Unpredictable World. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So in the Medici Effect, I explored this idea around diversity, innovation, but there was one big question that still remained for me, which was the notion of randomness and, uh, and serendipity in making these types of connections. And, and it really how serendipitous successes at all. You know, my career path was anything but planned. And the more I kept on talking to people, the more I realized that that holds true all over the place. Once you start digging underneath the truth of the matter, you realize that that the most successful companies start in one direction, but then they end up going in another. And the insight of how to go from one to the other tends to be more serendipitous than not. And so The Click Moment is really a book that explores that. It says that there are certain areas in the world where the rules rarely change, and those areas you can predict fairly well. Those are the areas that I call where it's sort of the 10,000-hour rule apply. If you want to go Mm -hmm. play tennis, you're not going to change the rules of tennis. Like, they are what they are. And so you can sort of start practicing your serve, your backhand, and so on. But in almost any other area of the world, of, of the social world, certainly of business, everything is up for grabs. and hence. Your success is more random, it's more serendipitous, it's more unexpected than you're likely to want to even acknowledge. And so in this book, I'm helping people to create strategies around what it means to capture that serendipity and sort of use it in your favor, what it means to open yourself up 
to the unexpected. I love it. I love it. So I'm excited to see where you're going next. I know you've got the Medici Group, and I don't know if there's anything else you want to tell us about that you're working on right now. Well, so the Medici Group is growing rapidly. We've It's been an amazing journey for us, but now it's really slamming on the on the gas for it. While doing so, we also started this thing that I mentioned earlier called the Medici Effect Community, which is also scaling very, very quickly. And those two things are connected. There's a few other things that I've been working on that are related to this. Around the diversity question, I put together a group, we're calling it Olympus, that is the leading researchers around the world that have looked at how diversity drives performance. Mm. So they're coming together from all over the planet and, and helping to provide insight in this. And finally, I'm starting to work on book three, which is going to certainly occupy a lot of my time over the next two years. Well, I know I'm excited to read it. As Do you have one last piece of advice for our listeners before we wrap up? I know that's a $64,000 question. <laughs> I would simply say this. If entrepreneurship is something that interests you, something that excites you, that is enough of a guide. I would say go out and just try to figure out what it means to be an entrepreneur. There is no one right answer. There are so many different ways of being an entrepreneur, so many different ways of, of approaching that, that ultimately you're going to have to find your way. And if in the journey you find out that, you know what, this wasn't for me, that's fine too. You will have learned so much that when you turn back on to joining an organization, you'll come in, you'll come at that challenge renewed with new insights and a whole new set of tools that you can apply. Wonderful. I've learned so much today and I appreciate so much the time that you've given us. I know our listeners are going to really be able to apply a lot of what they've heard today. Where can they find you? How can they connect with you? Right. So the easiest way would be to go to either my website called themedicigroup.com. You can just Google Medici Group with my name, Franz Johansson, and it'll pop up. And I have, you know, a LinkedIn, a Twitter as well. So there's other ways of following me as well. All right. That was awesome. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>